Okay, well, it's great to see you all this morning. Uh, it's good to be together. It's good to worship uh, together. Uh, it's good to study God's Word uh, together, and that's what we're going to do now. And so if you have your Bible, if you'd open up this morning to Second Timothy chapter 3. Uh, as you will know, we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Acts, and last week we concluded chapter 18. Uh, next week we'll pick up in chapter 19 uh, as Paul arrives in the city of Ephesus and he spends a great deal of time in the city of Ephesus. Uh, so we're going to spend a number of weeks uh, looking at Paul's uh, time in Ephesus and it's uh, a great uh, passage of scripture uh, and we look forward to studying that together in our time next Sunday and the Sundays beyond. Uh, but this morning, we're taking a break from the book of Acts, uh, and I'd like to talk to you uh, about a subject that I think is one of the most important subjects uh, in the culture in which we live, uh, and that is the subject of authority. Authority. Now, we all love that word, don't we? It all gives us, a, it gives us a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Uh, what do we mean by authority? Well, authority is the power or the right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And the subject of authority is a hugely important subject on many levels, not least on a personal level, for each and every one of us here this morning. And that's the context in which I'm going to be speaking today. Because whoever I, or whatever I personally recognize as the authority in my life, will have a direct impact on how I live my life, will have a direct effect on who or what I live my life for. Now today, we live in a culture that increasingly exalts the individual. Individualism, materialism, self-determinism are all characteristics of the age in which we live. I am in charge of me. Life is about me and it is for me. And no one else has the right to tell me what to think or what to do. Now, the Bible, quite straightforwardly and very bluntly, confronts this culture in which we live because the Bible declares that God is the creator of all things. And so God is the ultimate authority over everything and everyone. And the scripture calls all people everywhere to submit their lives to their creator, to submit their lives to God and to live their lives for him according to his purpose and for his glory, and not for themselves according to their own purposes and their own glory. So there's a question that I want us all to ask ourselves this morning, and that is simply this. Who has authority over your life? Who is the authority in your life? Let us read... Two short verses found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. There'll be verses which will be familiar to some of you, uh, maybe new to others of you. But they're very important verses for all of us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning. For your word, 
Uh, we thank you for this opportunity we have to set uh, time aside, Lord, from the busyness of life, from the issues, the problems, and all the various things we deal with all the time, uh, and just to be able to focus upon you and your word and what you would have to say to us today. So, Lord, I would ask by your spirit that you would speak into each and every one of our hearts, that you would grant us that understanding that we need, that spiritual understanding, Lord, that we may grow in our knowledge of you. And as our verse declares, that we may be further equipped for every work that you call us to. And so, Father, we ask your blessing upon this time now. We ask that you would bless your word to each of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've all heard of the Gideons. They're the people who put Bibles in hotel rooms and schools and old folks' homes and pretty much everywhere that they can. Uh, And if you've ever looked at a Gideon Bible, uh, in the front of that Bible there's a lot of information. Uh, But in the front of a Gideon Bible you will find this quote. During the British coronation ceremony, a Bible has traditionally been presented to the monarch with these words. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. It goes on. These words are true and deeply significant. This book has the power not only to inform, but also to reform and to transform lives. Through its influence, countless people have been given a new strength, an unerring purpose and a sure hope in life. It has brought blessing to millions in every land and age. It is supernatural in origin, external in duration, divine in authorship, infallible in authority, inexhaustible in meaning, universal in readership, unique in revelation, personal in application, and powerful in effect. It is given to you here in this life, It will be open at the judgment. It is established forever. Come to it with awe. Read it with reverence. Frequently. Slowly. Prayerfully. Now as we begin, there's a simple truth that we all need to know and understand. And that is this. That God is a speaking God. Let me read you what the writer to the Hebrew said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. He says this, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past through the prophets has in these last days spoken in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Now that verse tells us something very, very important. It tells us that God is not some impersonal, distant God who is far away, who is not concerned with the things of this world, that is not concerned with you and the things that you face in life. It means God is not just a God who created us and then just left us to get on with it all by ourselves. God has spoken. He has spoken into this world. He has spoken to the people of this world. He is a personal God who is not far from any of us. He's a God who is interested in the things of this world. He's a God who is interested in you and the things that happen in your life. 
And we can know God personally and we can know his will and purpose for our lives because God has spoken, because God has revealed himself to us. And God has revealed himself in a number of different ways. He's revealed himself generally through creation. The Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The theologians refer to that as the general revelation of God. But God has also revealed himself in a very specific way. Theologians refer to this as the special revelation of God. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about there in chapter 1 and verse 1. Because God has revealed himself specifically or specially through his word, which he declared to the prophets of old. That refers to our Old Testament, essentially. The Old Testament bears the authority of God, for it is the very word of God himself. But then God has also revealed himself to us through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who was and indeed is God. And so God has revealed himself through the written word, the Old Testament, the living word, that is Jesus Christ himself, from whom the New Testament came. And so if the Old Testament bears the authority of God, the New Testament bears the authority of Christ. And because Christ is God, the New Testament also bears the authority of God. And why has God revealed himself? Because of his great love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, yet Christ came into this world to die for us. And so, the Bible declares that God has spoken. Indeed, the Bible declares that the Bible itself is the very word of God. And so, if God has spoken... Don't we want to know what God has said? In fact, if God has spoken, isn't that the most important thing there is to know in this world? If God has spoken, there is nothing more important, nothing more important to know and to understand than what God has said. And here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, this is perhaps one of the most important verses in the whole of Scripture from a doctrinal perspective, but it's also one of the most important verses from a personal perspective as well. It certainly has been for me. You say, how so? Well, here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we have a great declaration of the authority of, of Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament. But when we talk about authority, we must also talk about obedience. Obedience to that authority. Because as we all know, authority demands obedience. And the truth of the matter is, for me, although I was brought up in a Christian home, much like Timothy, according to verse 15 in our passage, although I was taught the scriptures from my youth, and indeed I was, I have not always accepted and submitted myself to the authority of God's word in my life. I've not always been obedient to the Lord. Maybe some of you can relate to that here this morning. I hope I'm not the only one. Now, of course, there are many people today who reject the authority of the Bible. In fact, there are many people in churches today 
who reject the authority of the Bible. And that is a very serious thing. It is a very serious issue. But the Bible is, as it claims to be, the very word of God Almighty himself. And there are many reasons or evidences that we could give or arguments that we could make to testify uh, to that truth, to the truth and the integrity of the scriptures. Uh, But I have come to realize that one of the greatest evidences to the truth uh, of the scriptures, maybe even the greatest, I don't know, is the reality of a changed heart and a transformed life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the church at Corinth uh, in response to claims that the word that he preached, the word of God, was not indeed from God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he said this, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He says to the Corinthians, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is of the heart. In other words, the apostle Paul there was appealing to the work that the Spirit of God had done in the hearts and the lives of the Corinthian believers as evidence of the truth and the reality of the gospel message, the truth and the reality of the Word of God. Uh, and so what had God done exactly in the lives of the Corinthians? Well, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, in verse 10, Paul lists uh, a great number of sins and He says that those who practice such things, those who practice sin habitually, whose lives are given over to sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Their lives were previously dominated and controlled by sin, But because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit of God, their lives had been changed. They'd been cleansed of their sin, forgiven of their sin. And now they'd been made alive spiritually unto God. And how were they saved? Same way everybody else is saved. 1 Peter 2.23 tells us that we are born again by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word of God lives. It is alive. The writer to the Hebrews further explained that in Hebrews 4.12, when he said, the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the Bible, the word of God, has the ability to change and transform the heart and thus the life of any man or woman. So the Bible is not just any book. There are lots of books out there. There are lots of religious books out there. But the Bible is totally unique amongst all the books of the world. There is no other book like it. Because while other books can change a person's behavior outwardly, for a time at least, only the Word of God can change a person's heart. And ultimately it is the heart that is the issue. Romans chapter 1 verse 16, Paul declared... I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. See, no other book 
brings us that kind of power. The word of God, the truth of the gospel that has the ability, the power to change and to transform lives. Now I want to take that one step further and then we'll look a bit closer at verse 16 and say this. Our lives as Christians are one of the greatest witnesses that we have to the truth of the gospel before the world. It is through our loving obedience to God and his word, and our obedience is always out of a heart of love, by the way, not obligation or compulsion. We love him because he first loved us, and our obedience is out of a heart of love for God because of who he is and what he has done for us. You see, but it is our loving obedience to God and his word that makes our witness effective in the world in which we live. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and through 16. He said to his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So, he says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You see, he's talking about submitting ourselves under the authority of God and his word and living out unashamedly the truth of God's word, what is true, what is right, what is good, what is perfect, what is pure. All of those things. And in doing so, we become lights to the world around us and we become witnesses to the truth of the gospel and the reality of the word of God. And so, as we look at this verse now and verse 17, I just want to say this. I've learned the importance of obedience to God the hard way may not be the only one here. My dad always used to tell me, you can either learn the easy way or the hard way. (laughs) For some reason, we always want to learn the hard way. But I have discovered that obedience to God's will brings great blessing into our life. Being obedient to God's will saves us from so many of the pitfalls and consequences of sin. Obedience to God's will makes us a blessing to those around us, both inside and outside the church. And obedience to God's will gives us that peace which passes all understanding in our hearts and in our minds. So with that in mind, let us look at verse 16. And Paul makes a series of statements, and we're going to break it down. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So he begins, first two words, all Scripture. All Scripture. Now, I want to say the Bible comes to us as a whole. Old Testament and New Testament. 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years on four different continents, yet with one theme and with one message. In fact, the unity in the Scripture is a powerful evidence to the truth of the Scripture. And the reason there is unity from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, despite the diversity in authors, uh, times of writing and locations of writing, the reason for the unity of the Bible is that it is all about one thing, ultimately is all pointing us to one person. The Old Testament, it all points forward. It all points forward to the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world, It points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points us back 
to the Jesus who has come, the Savior fulfilling all the promises of the Old Testament. The Old Testament points us forward to Jesus. The New Testament points us back to Jesus. But Jesus ultimately is the central theme of the whole Bible. Now, now some of you may point out, well, when Paul was writing here, he didn't have a New Testament. He only had an Old Testament. And so when he was referring to Scripture, he was referring to the Old Testament. Uh, And in the primary sense, he would be correct. That would be true. Uh, What does the word Scripture mean? Incidentally, well, it means sacred writings, i.e. writings that have come from God. And so, and I already mentioned this a little earlier, if the Old Testament came to us from God, the New Testament came to us from Jesus. Jesus commissioned his apostles to teach the church all the things that he had commanded them. I could get into a lot more detail in that, but I, I won't. Suffice to say that the Old Testament bears the authority of God, for God spoke to the prophets who wrote down what God said. The New Testament bears the authority of Jesus, who commissioned and spoke to his apostles, who wrote down the things that Jesus said. And because Jesus is God, the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, is just as much the word of God. And in fact, Jesus himself is the word of God. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus, pointing us to the Jesus that has already come. And so, when we talk about all scripture here, we're talking about all scripture. Old Testament and New Testament. Notice the second phrase. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, what does that word inspiration mean? Well, it doesn't uh, mean uh, like somebody just had a spark of inspiration one day, you know, a good idea. I was just, you know, kind of thinking and walking and boom, wow. I was just a bit inspired there. That was a good idea. That was a good thought. It's not what it means at all. The word inspiration literally means, as it is stated here, God breathed. The idea is that God opened his mouth and literally out of his mouth came the words which are now on our pages. And it is a very specific term. It's a very literal term. The Bible is very literally a divine product breathed out from the very being of God himself. And that message came through men. And that is what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 21, talking about this. He said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God, by his Spirit, used holy men of God to write down his word. And so, the whole Bible is very literally God-breathed. It is very literally the word of God. And the word of God, of course, bears the authority of God because it's his word. And so every book we have in this Bible has been given to us by God himself. And as that is the case, it stands to reason what Paul says next. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It is profitable. That is beneficial, helpful, good for us, important. If all scripture is God's word to man, it must be profitable for man. It also means that it all matters. It's all profitable. That is to say, you can't just pick and choose the bits that you like and leave out the bits that you don't. And there are many, many people who are doing that today and are doing it in the name of Jesus. That is a very, very serious thing. They say, well, love. You know, Jesus talked about love. Uh, Oh, yes, yes, we like love. Yeah, let's talk about love. But when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Oh, actually, 
And I'm like, the side of that, den- deny myself? Oh, no, maybe we'll just ignore that one. You know, love, yes, we'll talk about love. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but division. Between my people and those who reject me. It's easy to pick and choose the bits that we like, the bits that we don't. We we must recognize as it all comes from God, that is the bits that we like and the bits that we don't. And when I disagree with God, who's right? You'd be surprised how many people will say me. Or you may not be surprised. But that's the bottom line choice. If God speaks and I don't like what God says, who's right? Who is the authority? Is it God or is it me? Now notice, there are four things Paul states, four reasons why the word of God is profitable for us. Four words, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. That is to say, the scripture is profitable, beneficial, helpful for us to teach us what is right and true, what is wrong, how we can go from wrong to being right, correction, and how we can live right. And so all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable to teach us what's right, what's wrong, how we can get right and how we can live right before God. It's a simple way to understand it. But let's look a bit closer at those four things. Doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine. That is to say, what is right, what is true. The word doctrine simply means teaching. The truth. Now, what is the truth? What does the Bible tell us uh, is the truth? Well, there's probably lots of answers we could come up with to that question. If we go right back to the very beginning of the Bible... One truth that the Bible declares is that there is a God. It's a basic fundamental truth. But what's interesting is that the Bible never seeks to prove that there is a God. The Bible always assumes that there is a God. And seen as the Bible is the word of God, that obviously makes a lot of sense. People don't normally write a book and have their first chapter proving to their reader that they exist. You don't normally need to do that, do you? The very fact that you have written the book is evidence enough that you do exist. And so God exists. That is true. God is the creator of all things. That is another truth the Bible declares. God created man. God loves mankind. All truths in the scripture and many, many more we could go to. But the Bible is profitable for telling us, for teaching us what is true, what is right. Secondly, reproof. Reproof. Could be translated rebuke. That is to say what is wrong. What is wrong. If God exists, he is the creator of all things, he has created mankind, and God loves his creation... What is wrong in this world? What does the Bible diagnose as the root problem that exists in this world? Now, you only need to pick up a newspaper or turn on the TV to see that this world is full of chaos and problems. Problems that man tries desperately to solve but always seems to fail. And just when man gets somewhere, then something else happens and something else happens and it's just a never-ending cycle of always trying but never quite getting there. Now, why can man not solve the problems of the world? Well, the answer is simple. And that's because man is the problem in the world. And the Bible diagnoses the root cause as sin in the heart of man. Sin changed everything. With sin came suffering. With sin came pain. With sin came death. 
etc., etc. But more important than that, sin separates man from God. And as we read this morning, the wrath of God is revealed upon all unrighteousness. And we are all unrighteous in and of ourselves. What the Bible declares, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages, the penalty of sin uh, is death, the judgment of God. And that speaks of physical death, yes, but more significantly spiritual death, eternal death, separation from God. And the judgment of God in hell. And that penalty has to be paid. God is a righteous God. He is a just God. He cannot just ignore sin. He cannot overlook sin or just excuse sin. God has to judge sin. The penalty for sin has to be paid. And that leaves man, of course, with a big problem. Because man cannot take away his own sin. No matter how many good works we do, and that's good to do good works, but they can't take away sin. No matter how much money we give to the poor, no matter how many times we go to church, I mean, those are all good things, but they can't change our hearts. And you see, this is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Because apart from the gospel, there is only bad news. And it's very bad. But the good news of the gospel is as good as the bad news of sin is bad. And I don't think I kind of have an adjective that's strong enough to say how good that is and that brings us to our third point so we have doctrine what is true what is right we have reproof what, what is wrong ultimately sin then correction see and this is essentially the gospel correction is how we go from being wrong to being right now I don't like correction I'll be honest you, you may love being corrected. I've never cared for it much, I'll be honest. I mean, I mean, why do I need to be corrected? I mean, if I was wrong, I would have changed my mind already. You know? That's how, that's how it works, right? I'm always right. See, my wife hasn't figured that out yet. That's kind of part of the problem. But we all need correction. And the Bible is all about correction. Because it's about redemption. It is about salvation. The unifying theme that runs from Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 all the way to the end of Genesis, uh, Revelation uh, chapter 22 is the theme of redemption in and through Jesus Christ. And it is throughout the scripture that that plan of redemption unfolds. All the way back from Genesis chapter 3, immediately after sin entered the garden, God made a promise in the garden to deal with Satan and to deal with sin through one who would come. And that is why the story of the Bible really is the greatest story ever told because it traces God's plan of salvation through building a nation from one man Abraham, the nation of Israel, through whom God would bring salvation to this world through his Messiah who was and is Jesus Christ himself. It's an incredible story. And it's a story that still continues, by the way. There is still an Israel. And there is still a future. And you just need to read the scriptures to discover what that future is. But you see, what we could not do in and of ourselves, God has done for us in Christ. The Bible says that in my flesh there dwells no good thing. 
The Bible tells us that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Because God so loved the world. And because he so loved the world, and because I cannot save myself, God sent Jesus to save me. He sent Jesus to do what I could not. So that I could be forgiven of my sins. set free from the power of sin in my life, brought into relationship with God, brought into the family of God to become a redeemed child of God and to have that blessed hope of eternal life with him. And you see, we know this to be true. We know this to be true because Jesus not only died on the cross, taking upon himself the penalty, the judgment of God for our sin, But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Would have done no good to say, yes, I'm dying for your sins. And then 2,000 years later, he's still dead. Not much hope of victory over sin there. Not much hope of conquering the grave, which is the penalty of sin. But you see, when Jesus died, three days later, he rose from the dead. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he gained the victory over sin, the victory over death. And it is the victory that we share in through faith in him, who he is and his death and resurrection. And so this becomes then the first act of obedience to God for any man, woman, or child in this world. That is to respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ to repent of your sins, to turn away from your sins, confess your sins before God and ask God for his forgiveness on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done through his death on the cross and the victory he has gained through his resurrection from the dead. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a wonderful and glorious truth for all of us. And if you haven't done that, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you haven't believed in him, the truths of his death and resurrection, you cannot please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the scripture says. But... Through faith in Christ, our hearts are changed, our lives are changed, and now we are in a position because of what God has done for us and through the Holy Spirit who he gives us to dwell in us. Now we can live a life that is pleasing to God. Now we can live a life of service to him. Now we can live a life that brings glory to him. And that is the final purpose, the final reason that Paul gives us at the end of verse 16. Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and then instruction in righteousness. What is true, what is wrong, how we get right now, how we live right before God. And so the word of God is profitable to instruct us in righteousness how do we live a life to please God well it's in here God has told us how do we know what's right it's in here how do we know what's wrong it's in here how do we know what to do if we get it wrong well it's in here the word of God instructs us in righteousness and the spirit of God empowers us to be obedient to his word. And obedience to God. That is to say, doing things God's way is always the best way. And I might disagree with God. And there are times that I do. I don't want to do this. I want to do that. But I have discovered to my cost at times, That God's way is always 
the best way. God's way is always the right way. And so when God says, no, don't do this, this is sin. It's not because God is just some kind of killjoy who's just this boring God in heaven that just wants to ruin your life, make it miserable. It's because God knows what sin is and God knows what sin does. And one quote that always stayed with me from years ago about sin is this. Sin will take you the places that you never wanted to go and sin will make you the person that you never wanted to be. And I found myself in that place about 15 years ago. I had given my life over to sin for years. And I woke up one morning and I literally thought, how did I get here? How did I become this person? How did I build this life for myself? I didn't know what to do. Being brought up in a Christian home, I knew the truth of the gospel. And after giving myself over to what the Bible says are the passing pleasures of sin, and oh sure, sin is pleasurable for a time, but that pleasure is passing and sin always has consequences. And the big consequence for me, for me at that time was I felt completely and utterly unable to give my life back to the Lord. I could picture a brick wall. And I would look, and I wasn't happy with my life, and I was miserable, and I'd done this, and I'd made this decision and this mistake for so long. And I, and I, and I thought, oh, if only, if only I could come back. But I felt I couldn't. It was too hard, didn't know what to do couldn't do it. It's this brick wall. I couldn't get over it. Couldn't get through it. It was a year later that I realized what that brick wall was. I think deep down I always knew, but couldn't acknowledge it. Couldn't admit it. Couldn't confess it. It was my sin. And sin is a brick wall to those who will not confess. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that brick wall is smashed to pieces. And I think it's fair to say my life has really never been quite the same since. Never thought in a million years I'd be doing this. But you see, and we'll close with this, God's way really is the best way. Oh, it can be hard. Yes. Oh, you'll have to do things that you don't want to do. Yes. You'll have to do things that will make you uncomfortable, and we all hate that because, you know, our comfort zones, we pretty much like our comfort zones. Very comfortable in my comfort zone. Don't disturb me. But notice what it says in verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has a purpose for his people. God has a purpose for you here this morning. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior... It is God's will for you that you would come to the knowledge of the truth. That Christ died for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day. And if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can do that right now in your own heart. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, God wants to complete and thoroughly equip you to accomplish the purposes that he has for your life. 
You may know what they are, you may not. Some of you will be sitting here and you know what they are, but you've been refusing in your heart to give in. I know what that's like. So we come back to the issue of authority. Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Is it you? Or is it God? Don't know what it is that sometimes intimidates us or scares us about being obedient to the Lord. We recognize there's a spiritual battle going on as well, and when God wants to use us for a purpose for his glory, you can bet Satan is out and his demons and they're throwing their fiery darts and all that they can do to keep us in our seat and to keep our mouths shut. But if God is asking you to get up and do something this morning, get up and do something. If God is asking you to open your mouth and speak this morning, open your mouth and speak. Trust the Lord. Trust in him with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. That's a killer. But acknowledge him in all your ways. And you will find that he is faithful to direct your paths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you not only have given us your word to instruct us in righteousness, but you've given us your spirit to empower us to live that righteous life according to your will and purpose. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you fill us all afresh, we pray, as we leave this place, that we may live those lives that are lives of obedience to you. Father, obedience not out of obligation, Lord, but because we love you. And we recognize you know what's best. And so, Lord, help us, encourage us, strengthen us, we pray, to live those lives you have called us to live. And may we do so, Lord, unto your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.